Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies on this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. In the race for president, Donald Trump has lost his lead in the state of Georgia. Former vice president and Democratic candidate Joe Biden is now ahead, but by a very thin margin. Right now, Georgia remains too close to call. Out of approximately 5 million votes cast, we'll have a margin of a few thousand. The focus for our office and for the county election officials for now remains on making sure that every legal vote is counted and recorded accurately. As we are closing in on a final count, we can begin to look toward our next steps. With a margin that small, there will be a recount in Georgia. That was Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger at a press conference earlier today. Now, coming up in just a moment, a conversation on how Georgia became so key in this year's presidential race. Emory University political science professor Andrew Gillespie joins me. We should probably prepare for this being an era where you're going to see close elections, as has been the case. Races have been getting closer for a decade now um, between Democrats and Republicans in Georgia. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, although the results in this election remain undecided, the data reflecting the current state of the pandemic is clear. Cases continue to reach record highs in the United States. The U.S. recorded nearly 122,000 new coronavirus cases today alone. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention announced earlier this week the number of daily cases has increased 20 percent over the past seven days. And yes, this includes Georgia. Now, according to the Georgia Department of Public Health and their latest data, 368,368 COVID cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. Also, 32,217 have been hospitalized. And of those, 6,058 were ICU admissions. And we know since March, according to the Department of Public Health, 8,126 deaths have been recorded. And that's always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Well, joining me now to talk about all of this, as he always does, WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands, Sam Whitehead. Sam, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. Well, so much, obviously, this week has been the election, but this COVID-19 pandemic, of course, isn't going anywhere. Sam, as of right now, we keep hearing that 100,000 new cases a day in the U.S. Is that true? Yeah, we have seen some really striking numbers in the last week, upwards of 100,000 new cases reported uh, countrywide. These are, again, one-day totals of COVID-19 cases and kind of a rough barometer of where the pandemic is moving. Um, a lot of these kinds of record-breaking case numbers is really driven by infections spreading and states in the Mountain West and the Midwest. But honestly, Rose, at this point, cases are rising all over the place. 
Um, you know, when I see these numbers, what I think about is something that Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University, who I know we all talk to frequently, mm-hmm. uh, said recently um, that he was worried about pandemic fatigue, right? People have been dealing with this for a long time now. And it's not surprising, especially with some of the big election news, that this is maybe not the first thing on the top of everyone's minds in the same way it once was. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Um, So maybe people are relaxing some of their prevention measures. It's getting colder in a lot of places. People are going inside. But the thing is, the virus doesn't get tired. um, And I feel like that's what we're seeing here. Well, how does Georgia compare to the rest of the country right now, Sam? Georgia is actually doing a little bit better. Um, You know, we're seeing bigger spikes in other parts of the country. uh, But that's not to say that Georgia is in a great position. Um, after the summer spike here we saw in the state, uh, numbers did go down, right? Let's let's acknowledge progress was made as we left the summer. But since we've really entered the fall, we've seen that progress slowly start to come undone. Um, we've seen new cases rise. We've seen hospitalizations rise. And public health experts said that what they were really hoping for here in Georgia was to see us really, really drive numbers down um, to a very low point before we you know, got to the point we are now getting closer and closer to winter, um, but that didn't happen. So things are on the rise and they're rising from a place where they never really got down to a, a super low point. Sam, have health state officials or Governor Kemp, I know obviously the election again has been on everybody's mind, but have they made any statement regarding these numbers? You know, Rose, I was just wondering about that prior to us talking. It has been a while since the governor or Dr. Kathleen Toomey, who leads our Department of Public Health here in the state, has done a pandemic or a COVID-specific press conference. Um, The last one they did a number of weeks ago was focused on um, encouraging people to get the flu vaccine. Uh, But like you said, the election has really eclipsed this news as of late. Um, Governor Kemp has updated his coronavirus executive orders, mm-hmm. continues to do that. That's something he did, I think, at the end of October. Um, he, only, he did that without many changes to it, despite the fact that we've seen cases rising here. Um, what else he did at the end of October was extend the state of public health emergency, mm-hmm. um, which is you know the kind of longer measure that gives the executive branch really broad powers about how to kind of manage the pandemic in the state. So despite the fact that our numbers are looking worse, at least from state officials, they, they seem to be in a little bit of a holding pattern. And Sam, we are used to getting this White House Coronavirus Task Force report. Do we have a latest one? Again, with the election, you never know. And if we did get one, what did it specifically have to say about Georgia? Yeah, WABE has been obtaining these uh, regularly now for the last few months. Um, The first thing that the task force said about Georgia was kind of surprising. Testing is down here. Diagnostic testing is down in the state. And Mm. that was something the White House has pointed out before. But what they said this time that was new was that this lack of testing is actually making the picture of the pandemic here in Georgia kind of fuzzy. Right. And this is something that people might remember back in the early days of the pandemic, us not, not testing enough to truly know the scope of it here in Georgia. It seems like we're maybe moving in that direction again. The White House also pointed out things that we've seen in state data. Cases are on the rise. Hospitalizations are on the rise. Specifically, what the White House targeted as a potential reason for that are not big gatherings, not Mm -hmm. people going to large events, things like that, but really the impact of small social gatherings on fueling disease spread. This is Rose, a dinner party with Mm -hmm. six people where maybe everyone is inside. Um, The White House says those kinds of events can be just as dangerous um, because 
it's in those settings that they worry people let their guard down even more. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're walking into a crowd of people, you might think, oh, I need a mask on. But if you're sitting at the dinner table with, you know, a family member who may be an extended family member who maybe lives in a different part of the state, in a different household, you're going to be more comfortable. We don't have to worry about me, Sam. I'm not inviting anybody over for dinner. <laughs> well, no. Well, Rose, and I, I mean, I, I think we can we, we can joke about it, but I also think that it's it's really important that as the pandemic goes on, I certainly have expanded the ways that I've interacted with with mm-hmm. people, and I think about this and worry about this every day. And you know, I think it's it's a lot harder, Rose, too, to navigate those kinds of social situations. If a family member invites you over to their home and maybe they're not as worried about it as you are, mm-hmm. that's that's tough to navigate. Sure. And I have to imagine that there are lots of people who are hearing this right now who, you know, are trying to do this in a way that is graceful and doesn't harm their social relationships, but also acknowledges that this is the, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Absolutely. And, you know, Sam, I know that there's so much news that comes out from the CDC But the agency this week released some new findings regarding pregnant women and their babies and basically sending out some information about how both can be affected by the virus here. What do you know about that? This is something that the CDC has been watching for a while. Mm -hmm. What does coronavirus infection mean for people who are pregnant? There were early indications that they were at higher risk. Uh, The CDC this week actually found in a larger study that pregnant women were more likely to need intensive care Hmm. and to die than non-pregnant women infected with the coronavirus Hmm. um, with an outsized impact for members of minority groups, which we've seen throughout the pandemic. The CDC cautions that risk is still low, Mm -hmm. but it is still there. Um, They also say that there is a higher risk for preterm birth among women who have tested positive for coronavirus. That risk is low, but it is still there. So, you know, as the pandemic goes on, we're getting more and more information about who is at higher risk. And We're seeing that now in a more definitive way for for women who are pregnant. Well, Sam, I do want to shift for a moment because this is health news. But look, next week, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in a case questioning the legality of the Affordable Care Act. We could spend a whole nother segment talking about that, but it could have some major implications. But also, it's just interesting because especially we're still in the middle of this pandemic. The timing is really crazy here. And I've heard the potential situation if the law is struck down described as utter chaos, right? Mm -hmm. The Affordable Care Act has been with us for a decade and it's made its way into so many parts of our healthcare system. But yes, next Tuesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in the case about whether to overturn the ACA. This is a suit in which Georgia plays a role. Um, Our Attorney General Chris Carr is on the side of states that want to overturn the Affordable Care Act. Um, We won't have a decision in this case until next year. Mm -hmm. And it's not really clear if the court will overturn the whole law or just parts of it. Um, who's controlling the White House and Congress also potentially play a role here. There are so many moving parts, but really to have this law that has undergirded and worked its way into so many parts of our healthcare system over the last decade, to have this law be up in the air potentially in the middle of a pandemic, it's remarkable timing. And this is a case with implications for Georgia, not only for the hundreds of thousands of people who get Obamacare health insurance, but Governor Brian Kemp is pursuing a number of health, we'll call them reforms, changes to the individual insurance marketplace here in Georgia, changes to the individual insurance market in Georgia that need the Affordable Care Act to happen. So if the Affordable Care Act is struck down in full, which is a possibility, all this work the governor has done to put these plans in place is 
undone. And then, of course, our state lawmakers will be returning to session next year. So there's a lot going on. Sam Whitehead, you stay busy, my friend. <laughs> it is very easy to these days. <laughs> Sam Whitehead is WAB's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, thank you for taking the time. Our listeners really appreciate these updates. Thank you, Russ. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It appears for now Georgia's largest county, Fulton, perhaps may be at the time of this broadcast near completion of its vote count. Maybe. Now, keep in mind there are military and overseas ballots. And by federal law, those ballots have a different deadline than other absentee ballots. So at the time of this broadcast, at the time that you're hearing it, Who knows? But right now, Joe Biden has about 1,100 more votes than President Donald Trump. But that, as you know, is always changing. Still quite a lot to discuss here. Joining me now from Emory University, Andrew Gillespie, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute at the university. Professor, welcome again. Good to see you. (laughs) Not just Georgia, but other states still counting, not necessarily a surprise, Maybe a surprise the nation still waits on the Friday after election Tuesday. What do you make of that? Well, I think we should have been prepared for that. You know, it would have been nice for the race to have been called on Tuesday night or sometime Wednesday. But when you have the volume of absentee and mail votes that were coming in and when you have margins that are this narrow, um, you know, it just takes time to count. And so, you know, if states were used to processing tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of absentee or mailed in ballots, and now they have millions to process, right? The machines just can't run fast enough. Uh, people can't open the envelopes fast enough. So I think we just have to be patient um, and trust the process and understand that people are trying to be transparent and that there is nothing nefarious going on. And some lessons definitely to be learned. And the pandemic, obviously, is a big reason of that. I want to shift and talk about these states that Donald Trump won in 2016, but obviously struggling right now here in 2020, Georgia being won in Pennsylvania. Is it fair to say that these states may be turning blue, are blue, or could be just a one-off because it's been such an interesting year? Well, we won't know for another couple of election cycles whether or not we're on the verge of a new trend or whether the Trump era was an outlier. So we'll have to wait. Um, You know, the fact that the margins in Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania in 2016 were so narrow, uh, you know, suggests one certain level of competitiveness that we knew um, was possible in those states, um, but also sort of suggested that, you know, we couldn't um, that, that that we should sort of be careful about our prognostications. I mean, you know, we typically thought of Michigan and Wisconsin as being reliably um, reliably democratic. And so the, there was the surprise of 2016, 
which I would largely sort of fault in terms of uh, poor GOTV efforts. Um, and what we've seen happen in the last uh, this election cycle is that the Biden campaign made a very concerted effort to be engaged in the Rust Belt um, to make sure that there were tons of visits there because the assumption was was that if the race could be lost by a slim margin, that it could also be won by a slim margin as well. Now, as far as Georgia is concerned, um, this has been a long time coming. Didn't know it could possibly happen this year. Um, there are some factors that predate the Trump era. Um, so Democrats have been eyeing turning Georgia blue for the better part of the decade now. They were looking at the demographic trends. They saw how the non-white population was increasing. They assumed that that would break Democratic and that eventually um, the state would be competitive. Stacey Abrams saw that and then you know made it her business to go and register uh, non-white voters and voters who uh, you know would likely be Democrats, particularly in her gubernatorial run. And so she's created an infrastructure that has made it easier to help boost Democratic voting numbers in the state. That infrastructure, um, I think, is going to outlast the Trump era. And so what I am expecting, though I am waiting you know, to be proven wrong by the data in subsequent elections, is that we should probably prepare for this being an era where you're going to see close elections, as has been the case. Races have been getting closer for a decade now. Um, between Democrats and Republicans in Georgia. And we should expect that Democrats and Republicans are going to alternate wins and losses mm -hmm. um, going forward. And, you know, that's not all because of Trump. It may have been exacerbated by Trump, but that's not all because of him. So when you look at the states that are still processing results right now, we know that Georgia and Pennsylvania, obviously, but we've got Nevada and, and North Carolina and Arizona and Alaska, which is surprising to some people. Um, let's start out west here. It, it, Arizona, it is projected that could go to Biden, but you never know. Um, and that's one of those states where President Trump, it was believed President Trump might have an advantage. Well, I mean, so if I want to think about the map, broadly speaking, mm -hmm. um, one, I think Alaska is still not being called by some outlets because the count is going very slowly there. Mm -hmm. um, I think ultimately, you know, I am not the one who gets to make official projections, but Alaska is going to go for Donald Trump. So I would focus on Nevada um, and Arizona and North Carolina, Georgia and, and, and Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, you know, where we're looking at these pretty small margins. And so what we're seeing happen in these states is that these, um, you know, were uh, previously Republican states. So Arizona has traditionally voted Republican in presidential elections. It has a large Hispanic population. Um, and but we they were also looking at other signs. So we were looking at um, the success of Senate candidates in the state recently. So Kirsten Sinema in 2018 and Mark mm -hmm. Kelly um, this week. So there were trends and signs that Democrats were in position to be able to be competitive in the state. I think overall, what we're looking at is this idea that uh, Vice President Biden can afford to lose a number of states and actually still get to 270 electoral college votes. Of the remaining five states that I've identified, Trump can only lose one of them and still have a path to victory, mm -hmm. which means that if he ends up losing two of these states in the long run, Joe Biden um, is at best tied with him. Um, and so, uh, you know, if Georgia uh, for instance, if North Carolina stays Republican um, and Georgia goes Democratic, right, that gets him to 269 electoral college votes, which would force a tie. Mm -hmm. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, it actually doesn't matter what happens in the rest of the country. Biden is actually over 
the top in this race. But if he if Biden wins any other combination, he's going to get to 270. So the only state that can't pull him there by themselves is Nevada, Nevada. because it only has six electoral college votes. Looking at the map nationwide here, and it's no surprise here, the heartland, the southern states. We saw, if you want to call it a flip, Wisconsin and, and Michigan, if you want, in terms of flipping from 2016. This has been consistent, though, for the Democrats and Republicans. And I'm wondering through your lens, when this is all said and done, whatever the outcome is, what will each party look at in terms of what strategy do we need to be thinking about for the next four years? Well, I think that there are a number of things to think about. There is the legislative strategy. So if, 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 let's say, um, and, and there's a chance for uh, Democrats and Republicans to potentially tie um, in the Senate, um, mm-hmm. especially if the two Georgia races go to a runoff and John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were to win. Um, I'm assuming that Tom Tillis is going to hold on to his seat in North Carolina. Um, but um, there's the legislative strategy. And so Republicans have to ask themselves whether or not um, obstructing um, the Biden administration is actually a useful strategy to help them make gains um, in, in, in 2022. Um, you know, I think they're looking at sort of the tradition of the incumbent party, a president, incumbent president's party losing um, seats in, in, in the midterm elections is probably their guide. But um, you know, if, if if Mitch McConnell really is going to fight Joe Biden on his cabinet choices, is that really a sort of, you know, good use of his time, especially um, given the Senate map in 2022, where there are also lots of Republicans who are going to be up for reelection. So I think they, they're going to have to count that cost. Um, in the House of Representatives, where Democrats actually lost seats this time, they won't lose their majority, but they've lost seats. They've lost seats particularly Um, amongst the moderate voters. So uh, people who were in those swing districts that flipped from red to blue in 2018 are particularly embattled and some of them have lost their seats. So right now there is an ideological discussion that's going on in the Republican party about looking too progressive, right? Because right now the moderates feel that they got tarnished with that socialist moniker that Mm -hmm. Republicans have used effectively. Um, And then there is just the general you know, what is the right thing for America? How do we bring people together? We're still a nation that's very, very divided, even if Donald Trump isn't president. And so the next administration is going to have to figure out how to bring this back together. So even when people disagree, they can do so in a civil and productive way and not in a way that's obstructionist or that lends itself to kind of engendering violence. And my goodness, it sounds so simplistic to hear the execution is, <laughs> and the ability to do that obviously is another. Let's look at then these other two Senate races here because the, I'll be honest with you. I think there was a surprise that John Ossoff was able to push Senator Perdue to a runoff. Maybe not so much of a surprise with Kelly Leffler and Reverend Warnock with Doug Collins being in the mix, but let's start with that Ossoff and Perdue. How do Democrats get their base to come back out to mobilize them? Because in traditionally, you know, in runoffs, a lot of folks don't come out anyway. But this is for two congr- two Senate seats. So the Dems, how do they get folks to come back out? So I think we need to throw out our conventional wisdoms about runoff elections in Georgia. The conventional wisdom is based on the fact that Republicans are supposed to have a partisan advantage in the state. The last couple of election cycles suggest that whatever partisan advantage Republicans have, if they still have it, they don't have it to the same degree. So I think the working assumption uh, needs to be now that there are roughly equal numbers of Republican and Democratic voters in Georgia. And so that makes the turnout discussion even more important. 
it, it explains why Republicans usually were able to win. Um, not only did they have more people, they tended to do a better job organizing them and getting them to turn out mm -hmm. to vote in runoff elections. But now both sides have to be paying attention to turnout um, because if their get out the vote operation falters, they will lose. So for this election cycle, I think, you know, I assume that the votes between the Republican and the Democratic candidates are going to be highly correlated. So, for instance, I don't expect somebody, very many people to vote Republican in one Senate contest and then go vote Democratic in the other. So I expect that they're pretty much going to go in lockstep with each other. So I imagine that uh, Leffler and Purdue and Warnock and Ossoff will coordinate their campaign efforts. And they're certainly going to get coordinated campaign efforts from outside groups and from the DSCC um, and other entities. I think the big question on the table for Democrats right now is they, uh, you know, uh, chose to focus most of their campaign on digital um, and phone banking um, because it's not particularly safe to canvas with the pandemic. And even though we see rising numbers of COVID cases and rising numbers of COVID deaths, I suspect that they're trying to figure out how they can knock on doors in a socially distant manner um, in order to make sure that they maximize turnout because this is going to be an all hands on deck type of situation. Is there an advantage for one of the parties that both of these races will now go to a runoff? Does it benefit one over the other, you think? I don't know if I would answer that question. Like I said, I think that we're in a new normal and we're figuring out the contours of that new normal. So, you know, again, if I thought that pound for pound there were more Republicans than Democrats in the state, mm -hmm. um, right, I would say the advantage would go to the Republicans. But we've seen these close elections where we're saying, wow, there are lots of Democrats in this state. Um, and I think that they're going to be pretty uh, motivated and they're going to be especially motivated by the fact uh, that if Tom Tillis wins his seat, uh, that these two races could spell the difference between Republican control of the chamber or Kamala Harris being in a position um, to be the tiebreaker if she needs to be if Joe Biden wins the presidency. So I think that, you know, this is an entirely different situation and they're going to have to plan. Each party's going to have to plan accordingly. And depending on whom wins the presidential election, that could decide what heavy hitters come back to Georgia to help in campaigning and, and energize these bases. Probably we'll see President, former President Barack Obama come back to Georgia, may see some heavy hitters from the Republican Party coming into the state. That's Does that help anymore, you think, though? So I think, you know, it's always important to realize what rallies do. Um, so, you know, rallies certainly help with earned media, so you can get free advertising on the news when somebody shows up. Um, it could help generate interest and excitement, particularly for volunteers who then use that excitement to go and continue to do the hard work of a campaign, which is going to have to happen um, here, you know, in the state for, you know, the next, uh, you know, roughly eight weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and um, but at the end of the day, what's most important is to focus on the field operations. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, it is making sure that they've identified every potential voter, that they touch them in some kind of personal way. Um, so, you know, um, you know, they'll decide whether or not they want to do it face to face. They can do it over the phone, sort of having real conversations with people. They can do it via text messages. Um, I would say that if a campaign focuses all of its energy on um, rallies, while there are some things that you might be able to kind of infer anecdotally from mm -hmm. them, but you ignore the field operations, you're actually wasting your time and energy. It's much more important to focus on field operations. Does the messaging change? And maybe it does for the Republicans if Donald Trump is not reelected because Kelly Leffler can't run on 
I'm always 100% behind President Trump. Or could she? Does it, would it matter? Well, even if, um, even if President Trump wins the election, I expect that Senator Leffler in particular is going to have to pivot. So in the, uh, you know, in the open primary, um, basically she and Doug Collins were running their own Republican primary and mm -hmm. they were trying to appeal to the median Republican voter um, who was quite conservative and hence all of the, we are Trumpier than Trump type of, of, of rhetoric. So, um, you know, that succeeded in getting her into second place, but now she's trying to figure out how she can get a clear majority of the vote. Um, and so I think, you know, the best way that she's going to do that is through turnout. Like, I don't think that there are very many persuadable voters at this point mm -hmm. um, in the state. But just in case there is somebody who is persuadable, she might want to inch a little bit back to the center. She might want to, you know, try to like walk away from the Attila, Attila the Hun comparisons, um, because that would be off-putting uh, for centrist voters. Uh, uh, but, you know, in general, you know, I think that this is about turnout and making sure uh, that the Republican Party apparatus gets its people out and that they do a better job of that than the Democrats. Folks like you, political science professors, analysts, experts, what are you going to be paying attention to post this election? And what what data do you want to extract from all of this? Um, so, you know, we have some uh, sense from the exit polls about what motivated voters, but political scientists do their own theories where we ask more detailed questions. And so mm -hmm. we're going to be pouring through that for years to come. Um, as I've mentioned before, um, I, I still see a very polarized country. Um, and so I think that that's going to continue. And we are going to have to, just for our own sake, figure out how um, to move forward and to move forward together. And I think that there's still a conversation to be had that is actually more challenging with a divided outcome than it would have been if this had been a more decisive outcome one way or the other about the health of our institutions. And in particular, should we codify norms that President Trump flouted? Should Joe Biden be president of the United States? So those are the things that I'm thinking about right now. Mm. Andre Gillespie, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute at Emory University. Professor, as always, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. I would tell you to get some rest, but both of us, I don't know if we know what that looks like right now. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. So thank you very much. Take care, Professor. You too. at the club. Kevin Rinker, DJ. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's a familiar sound, the start of a new session down at the state capitol. The last few years, Georgia House Speaker David Ralston has said this. The hour of convening having arrived, all members will please report to the floor of the House and take seats. All members will please take their seats. Mr. Clerk will ring the bell. Ah, yes, the ringing of the bell, signaling a new session is underway. Now, when state lawmakers return, there will be newcomers representing the House and Senate districts throughout the state. We're going to try and meet as many as we can from both sides of the aisle. And if you are newly elected and I don't know who you are, reach out to me because 
Our listeners want to hear from you. But today we'll start with Reverend Kim Jackson, elected from, from Georgia State District 41, and Nikki Merritt, who was thrilled when I called her. She's going to represent Georgia State District 9. Senators-elect Jackson and Senator-elect Merritt, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, thank you for having me. This is so exciting. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're always going to have that feeling about talking to a journalist, Senator-elect Merritt. <laughs> well, I've heard. <laughs> uh, I'm fair. Just ask anybody. Uh, let, let's start with you, uh, uh, Ms. Merritt. Uh, how you feeling? I feel elated. Um, this is all a bit still surreal for me because um, our campaign never really stopped. We had we had primary, a runoff, and now we're down to the end. So um, it's just incredible. It's incredible. Turnout has been incredible. And, um, you know, I just thank all the people that um, have gotten out there to let their voice be heard and got out and vote. And now we're seeing the results of that. Reverend Jackson, how you feeling? I'm excited, and I think uh, like Senator like Merritt, it hasn't quite—it's uh, not quite sinking in yet. I I think I'm waiting to hear that bell ring before I really, really believe that this is uh, that this is real. Uh, it just takes a while to to really take it all in. And Senator like Jackson, we should, you know, for full disclosure, you've been a guest on this uh, program before and we've done segments that relates to faith or healing and faith in politics. Let me stay with you for a moment because you never, ever mentioned that you wanted to possibly run for office. Uh, why? What got you into this? Yeah, so actually I've wanted to run since I was 13 years old. I've I've known that I've had a dual calling to both serve as a clergy person, as a as a clergy leader and as a public servant. I very much see these two things um, linked hand in hand because I very much feel called to try to make this world better than the world I was born into. And to especially try to make this world better for, for everyone, for people who are often left um, unheard and unseen. So these this is a dream come true in so many ways and very much a part of all of the ways that I feel called to live into the world. Uh, Senator-elect Merritt, what about you? What was that, was it a calling for you? You know what? The calling for me was the election of Donald Trump, and I was highly motivated after that. I was not I remember, you know, not being able to sleep that night um, because, you know, I have a young black male and, and two young black women in my home. And um, I was just worried about their future and the future of all the kids in my community. And, and the divisive rhetoric um, really bothered me. And um that was my motivation to jump in and dive into a really deep uh, politically to see who was representing us. And um, from there, getting engaged on the ground and talking to folks, I decided that uh, I wanted to jump in and, and run. And I was um, really motivated by the women in this district in Gwinnett County that won in 2018. You know, they were regular black moms and uh, like me with families and children. And then I saw the women in Congress that, that ran, the women of color, and I was like, you know what? I can do this, I'm ready. Let's talk about your respective uh, constituents here. And, and Ms. Merritt, I'll stay with you. You had to get out. I mean, it was a pandemic, too, this time. But as you were out trying to talk to as many people as you could or, or get your feedback, what, what did you hear from your constituents? What were those issues that were important? They were kitchen table issues, mostly. You know, uh, covid has it, it posed a problem with even all of our campaigns with how we campaign. We were trying to be very sensitive about not going door to door directly and talking to people. So a lot of our campaign had to move to more digital platforms, more trying to get people on mail and on the phone. 
And um, as far as my constituents, you know, and this is a result of COVID and we see what's happening because it is a trickle down effect. COVID has affected my community, um, not only with uh, uncertainty and fear about how we get out of this, but it also affected, you know, education and parents having to make some tough decisions about whether or not their kids were going to go to school. And um, because we had, we didn't have the leadership that put that in their hands and, and, and made it harder for them and hard for our teachers. No one ever consulted our teachers or, or thought about it. So I would say, you know, educationally, my teachers and uh, parents and kids going to school, that is a big concern. Healthcare, of course, is number one that we always keep saying that that is a, is a, is a hot topic. And, um, you know, just us doing simple health precautions uh, would, we know, uh, decrease uh, some of the spread, but that is a concern. And of course, our, our economy, our businesses, jobs, we have high un unemployment right now. And um, our small businesses and some of our families are being really hit by that. So those are a few of the issues I know that directly uh, affect uh, my constituents here. Reverend Jackson, what about you? Yeah, so I've had the privilege of campaigning for over the last year and a half. And so I've heard um, so many things about issues around education, even before COVID, about children having access to quality education. And then certainly when COVID came, uh, I think something that often people don't associate with the metro area is issues around connectivity when it comes to the internet. But it has become very clear in my district, while we are a very much an urban district, that our kids are having a trouble getting connected. So when it comes to virtual learning, they're being left behind. Um, that gap is still there. And then also there's just a lot of concern about workers in my district. And so, you know, the General Assembly did this work of coming together this summer and passing some legislation to protect businesses um, from lawsuits from, you know, say everyday citizens who come in, right? So if you go into the place of business and if you catch COVID in that business, you can't sue. Um, but we did nothing really to protect workers. And I have a, a large working class uh, group of folks who live in my district and they are deeply concerned mm -hmm. about the fact that PPEs aren't being provided by their by their employers, right? They're deeply concerned about not being able to take off work when they're sick. There's not paid um, medical leave. And so those issues are very near and dear to our hearts, uh, along with certainly health care and employment. I mean, all those kind of big issues that really impact uh, what people do with their families when they come home. Um, and lastly, I'll say issues around affordable housing. I, I am so blessed to live in a district where people care about one another. And I can't tell you how many phone calls, emails, and text messages that I've received about people who are homeless in my district. Um, people are concerned about the men and the women, the people who are living in the MARTA, you know, the MARTA bus stops, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so issues around affordable housing are huge, and it's something that we have to attack and really care for um, if we want to continue to move Georgia forward. Let's focus a moment on what you want, on what each of you will do to sort of get yourself ready. Uh, I imagine you may have some mentors or people reaching out. What has that been like? Uh, Reverend Jackson, I'll stay with you. 
Yeah, so I, I've been uh, overwhelmed with a lot of congratulations uh, over the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, but all along the way, I've had a number of legislators who have mentored me and walked me through this process. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And um, I'm also, I am very much about trying to flatten the learning curve as much as I can. And so I've been memorizing the names of all the state senators, uh, <laughs> learning, <laughs> learning where people live and where they come from. You know, I didn't grow up in Georgia, so I didn't learn the 159 counties when I was in, in elementary school, but I'm learning those things and figuring out, you know, what are the issues that impact not just District 41, but impact all of Georgia? Because mm -hmm. as a senator, I get to vote on all of those things, right? I get to introduce legislation about all 159 counties of Georgia. And so I'm really just trying to, to learn those things and learn the rules, right? Uh, I'm really reading all those books and, and having a lot of conversations with mentors people who are currently sitting. And also, I, I want to shout out Steve Henson, who is the retiring senator from my district. He has been an incredible mentor and friend for me on this journey. Right, Ms. Merritt, what about you? Who's been reaching out and offering to help and get you acclimated and all that? Yeah, so, so many of the women, like I said, in my district that, that ran and won, you know, um, Representative Donna McLeod, you know, she and I speak very often. I mean, I almost feel like it feels like she's a part of my family. So that has always been a source for me to go for information or any questions that I may have. Um, I have a representative uh, Shelly Hutchinson, of course, representative Dr. Jasmine Clark. I can pick up the phone anytime and ask them a question and get their feedback and what it's really, really, really like day to day. And, uh, you know, as far as learning, there's going to be, I, I am with uh, Senator elect Jackson. There is, we're, we're trying to let the wind land a little bit and there's going to be this crossover from campaigning to legislating. And there's so much to learn from that. Um, I'm lucky I have on my staff, my campaign manager is Neil Van Martyr. He was a clerk at the Capitol, so he has a little more uh, insight as to where we're going and what's going to happen. But I have to learn the committees and the rules and um, all the protocol, but I look forward to it. I'm a curious person, so I guess it's going to be good. And get your parking badge because that's the most important thing too <laughs> that's what i heard is very get your tag <laughs> tag so you can like run in the hov lane i'm like really <laughs> this, this is thing. <laughs> let's um let's let's talk about our nation for a moment because we keep we've been hearing this for a while it's a nation divided you know we're a divided nation uh, as we wrap up and uh center-elect nikki Merritt, I'll, I'll begin with you what is your approach to to bringing even if we can't start with the nation start at least with the the state legislature and working across the aisle and, and working with folks who you may not share the same political ideology but you have the same task as lawmakers here in georgia mm -hmm. yeah and, you know, I am always one, I believe in the community. I believe here in Georgia, even though we are seeing with some of the votes, maybe contrary to this narrative, that there are really good people here and they want what's best and they care about their communities and they don't like the divisiveness and the division. And um, I myself will look forward to working across the aisles on issues that are impacting um, my community specifically. And I, and I would hope that, um, we can come to some a lot of bipartisan agreements um, and break some barriers of a, like we can't talk to each other. So um, that's kind of my thoughts. I like community. I like us to think. I like to think of us as one tribe and one people because we all are just Americans at the end of the day. And I'm hoping that um, um, 
Joe Biden does get elected and we get past this election and we can get to some healing and realize that we really are all friends and, and more probably um, uh, brings us together than divides us. All right. Senator-elect Kim Jackson. Yeah, so I've, I've thought a lot about where I felt called to serve in public service. And I chose the Georgia General Assembly in part because of the bipartisan nature of the General Assembly. I think most people aren't aware that almost 90% of bills that get passed uh, in Georgia are passed um, almost unanimously. There's an incredible amount of bipartisan work that takes place. I've had the privilege of, of working on bills as, a, as an advocate and as a faith leader in Georgia and, and seeing how it works, right? We were able to pass legislation to protect um, women, to protect children, to make sure that rape kits got counted. Um, we passed legislation to expand Medicaid for women who give birth in this state um, who are on Medicaid. And so those things happen because we work across the aisle. And I find I find that inspiring and I hope that's inspiring for the nation. Um, so, you know, as we count all of these votes and we see that Georgia is very, very purple and may in fact be blue, um, what we know though for sure that when it comes to the General Assembly, um, we do work together and we're able to, to cross over some real political differences. And so that's the the hope that I come with into the General Assembly and the work that I plan to do. I am ready to reach across the aisle and really do what's best for all Georgians. And I know we're going to try to meet as many of you newcomers as we can from both sides of the aisle. And hey, feel free to reach out to me, Rose, at WABE.org. Say, hey, Rose, I'm a newcomer. Get me on the show. I got you. Reverend Kim Jackson, elected from Georgia State District 41. Nikki Merritt, who represent Georgia State District 9. Senators-elect Jackson and Merritt, thank you so much for taking the time, being our, you're all kind of the audition for this new little conversation series. So you did well, I think. (laughs) Thanks so much, Rose. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rose. It was a pleasure being on. And that's it for today's edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer today is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. If you miss any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And, of course, as a podcast, wherever you go, Closer Look will be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. As Georgia continues to count, this is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.